Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Bree Turnsko. Bree is a professor at Arizona Christian University. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's the director of the MFT program. Bree has spoken at national, international, and state conferences. She has authored a book that I got to review. She actually has authored five books. The book that I really, that really brought Brie to my attention is Parent the Child You Have, Not the Child You Were. And I am so excited to be speaking with her today because she has a very unique and interesting take on healing while we parent. Thank you so much for joining us, Brie. I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you and I've admired your work for a long time. And so it's such an honor to be here and chat with you. So exciting to be doing this. So can you tell me a little bit about the origin story of the book? Yeah. Um, oof. So I've been seeing clients, like you said, I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I work with the entire family. And so about five, six years ago, I started seeing this really interesting wave of parenting where, you know, when I would ask parents, well, tell me about the decisions that you made. Like, how did you come up with this parenting decision? And most, most people, most couples, I guess, would have one or both parents respond back of, well, I'm doing the exact opposite of what my parents did. Regardless of whether or not it works for their kid, they intentionally are doing the exact opposite. And so then I started to notice some parents state, and it wasn't very many, but a few would state, well, this worked for me as a kid. And so I'm doing how I was parented. You know, my parents spanked me. So why wouldn't I spank my kid? I turned out okay. Right. And so I really started to see this trend of us not recognizing the cute little, you know, individual in front of us, but kind of this mirrored aspect of us as, you know, children saying, well, I'm going to parent my kid kind of how I was raised. And that should be just fine or the exact opposite of how I was raised. And so that's kind of how the book came to be. And the more I started doing interviews with parents, and I really started taking this interesting approach of you're parenting the child that you were, not the child you have, that phrase resonated with a lot of parents. I um, love that phrase. I think that I think that it's very true that, I mean, I remember learning in grad school that the opposite of the thing is off, is often the thing. Like on my second marriage, I'm going to marry someone who's the opposite of my first husband. And then mm -hmm. you end up with the same personality type that's just expressed differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think like saying I'm going to parent opposite to how my parents parented is kind of like the opposite of the thing that is the thing. I feel like also you're right. We have to focus on the unique little human in front of us, not our inner child. Right. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of why you think that occurs with parents. Um, I think we all have different, you know, philosophies or reasonings behind it. 
But yeah, like, why do you think parents really struggle with letting go of maybe their own inner child and, you know, leaning into the cute little one that's in front of them? Do you have a thought on that? I think you also touched on this in the book. And I think that a lot of parenting, a lot of parenting can be stressful, right? And when we're stressed, we kind of, our brain kind of naturally goes to default scripts. I think one of the reasons why, I don't know if you had this experience in grad school or an internship where like I worked in a psyche ER and they would like drill you with certain protocols, like, mm-hmm. you know, what to do if a patient is threatening and there was like the H-A-R-M protocol and they would kind of drill you on it or, you know, different, you know, different um, like three letter kind of acronyms for what you do. And the reason for that is because in a moment of stress, you're going to panic. If some if some patient somehow grabs, you know, a scalpel or something and they're coming at you, you're going to panic. But if you've had something drilled into you, you know what you're supposed to do. When we're parenting, I don't think we're prepared for the level of stress that that tiny little, like, you know, 40-pound little human can engender in us. I mean, they're they're tiny. It's so stressful. So we find our parents' voices just sort of coming out. So there are some parents who are like, I don't know what to yes do, but I know what to not do. Whatever my mom did, because my childhood was pretty bad. So I'm going to do the opposite. But it turns out the opposite is also not what you're wanting to do. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I agree with you. I do think that we do tend to have those scripts and that mantra in the back of our mind. And it's interesting. I do think thinking tends to be one of those that whenever your child is screaming or throwing a fit, I think most parents go back to, well, this is what my parent did when, you know, when they felt out of control. And and so I'm going to, you know, spank my kid, hit my kid, expecting them to fall into line. So yeah, I I definitely can see that and agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, spanking is one of those, I know you work at a Christian university, so I feel like there's, you probably get somewhat of a traditional patient population right, where people are coming in for marriage and family counseling with those values and maybe those messages about spare the rod, spoil the child, oh, right? I hate that phrase. And, you're right. I do. I get that a lot. And I feel like with spanking especially, first of all, I'm not so sure. It depends, I think, what religious discipline we're speaking of. Mm-hmm. But I'm not so sure that the intent of any higher power was when you're mad, you get to hit because you're the bigger person, I, I, you know, the larger person, right? I, I don't think that that was divinely ordained. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think so either. And, you know, I have to walk a lot of parents through kind of this process of like, well, when you're spanking, like, what are you getting out of it? Like, what difference does it make for you, not your kid, when you spank them? And most of the parents will say, well, then my kid calms down or my kid does whatever I'm immediately wanting them to do. And so, so it they feeds, right. And so then it feeds the parents, not negative cognition, but it feeds the opposite of their negative cognition. So if that parent's negative thought is, well, I'm a bad parent, if my child complies, oh, see, I'm a good enough parent, see this worked. And then I think what it does is it just reinforces reinforces the parents, you know, desire to spank their child in the future or do whatever worked in the future. Yeah. I tried something with somebody who was coming to my parenting class who was very insistent that she must spank her kids and this is what like God wants of her and this is what she was taught and her and she turned out fine and all that stuff. When she was patently not so fine, right? Like meaning she would talk about a lot of emotional struggles that she was having in the parenting class. And that's not Mm -hmm. a judgment thing, but it's like you are struggling with your emotions. So I said to her, okay, I want to try an experiment. You can only spank if you wait 24 hours. 
So your kid does something that you don't want at four o'clock on Tuesday. You can't spank him till four o'clock on Wednesday and keep a journal. And she came back and she's like, so I actually never spanked him this week once because four o'clock on Wednesday, it was a different thing. I had a conversation with him, which is what I was trying to get her to do. Four o'clock on Wednesday, I said, yesterday, when you shoved your sister on the playground, that wasn't okay. And we had to come home and we had to cut our playground time short. And that was because you pushed your sister. We can't push our Mm -hmm. sister on the playground. But I didn't have any need to spank him. So I didn't. So I said, so then you are spanking from a moment of emotional hijack, right? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I love that. It was kind Um, of risky because I'm like, am I, as a child psychologist, prescribing spanking? But I really wasn't. I was trying to give her insight because she wasn't seeing it. It was almost threatening to her. Like, if I do this, that means the way my mom parented me wasn't okay. Yeah. You know, and that's a really interesting piece, too. When I wrote the book... I did really want to drive into there, you know, two different aspects is I hate shaming parents, right? That's never my intention. And that's never my goal. But I also don't want to shame anyone else's parents, right? right? Now, there's a big difference between parents who are emotionally, spiritually, physically, like abusive and neglectful versus parents who are really trying to do the best they can with the information that they have. And I didn't want anyone to read the book and think that I was shaming their parent, Right. Because again, we are parenting, you know, from a place of, hey, this is the information that I have. But as time goes on, especially, you know, with spanking research, we're figuring out how detrimental that that is for children. And so, yeah, I mean, it's this interesting aspect of, you know, personally, I, I have great parents, you know, love both of my parents very much. I know that they both parented me from, you know, from who they were as children. And there were aspects, you know, of my mom's parenting that I really want to try not to repeat in the future, but I don't want to shame my mom into saying, oh my gosh, you did A, B, C, and D, and this is why I'm so messed up, right? And so I think it's how do we heal, but also not place blame, right? Unnecessary blame on people who raised us, who really were, you know, 90% of parents are trying to do the best they can with what they at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I I have this issue with post-traumatic parenting as well. Like there are people Mm -hmm. who say, you know, the title of your book is polarizing because my parents weren't bad people. Mm -hmm. And I think saying that we're traumatized implies an abuser, but not necessarily the best, most well-intentioned parent in the world who really means well Mm -hmm. can still inadvertently traumatize their child. And the two can simultaneously be true. This is dialectical thinking that I think the world is embracing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I absolutely love that. And when I work with clients too, I have to walk them through that term of trauma because people think like abuse, neglect, right? My parents didn't feed me for days. And, and I tell them that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is anything that didn't make you feel safe. And so then parents are able to highlight like, oh gosh, yeah, I remember that any time you know, I really struggled with not feeling good enough. My mom just put me in my room and I was just put in time out and it caused her to not feel safe. And so whenever she was triggered on the parent side of it and not feeling good enough, she found herself trying to isolate from everybody, you know, because that's just how she was raised. And so, yeah, like kind of redefining that term of trauma for people, I think can be really helpful because then it, it opens us up to say, Hey, I didn't feel safe in this moment. And some of my clients, they 
they can't and they won't use the word trauma. And so we don't use it. Um, So oftentimes we'll just say, well, tell me about times when you didn't feel safe. Tell me about times that you didn't feel good enough as a kid. And, you know, whatever terminology they want to use works for me. But but that's why I was really drawn to that term of, you know, post-traumatic parenting, because I think that it's so common. I agree. I love the way you're saying it's so counter-shaming, the way you're saying, like, tell me when you felt alone as a child. Like, right, you don't have to, like, accept the label of a traumatized person. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that many more people have experienced trauma than they realize because if trauma something like you said that you've too big for your brain that you felt alone with i think that that happens in childhood but that idea that you know this was a time that you felt too small for a very big challenge and you felt alone with that that's enough we can say that we don't have to use the term trauma if it's triggering to you in some way right right yeah and so it It's interesting because I work with a lot of parents who are raising a child with a disability, caring for any family member with a disability, really. And so with those parents, too, it can be really hard. And I'm working with a mom right now who I just I adore her. And she said, it's so hard for me to say that parenting my daughter is a trauma. And I said, yeah, I get why that would be hard to say. And she goes, but I'm on such high alert because her daughter has very severe autism, epilepsy, and just overall developmental delays. And so, I mean, if you don't watch her every second of the day, something very traumatic can happen in the home. And so mom is constantly functioning at this very, very high hyper arousal state. And so with her too, she's like, I'm not ready to use that word trauma yet. Like, I'm not ready to say my child is causing a trauma And I say, okay, I totally understand. The trauma in that case, I feel like there's two traumas. One trauma is the challenge is too big because you need to keep a little human who is very fragile alive. And that's terrifying. I grew up in a home with a very ill parent. My father had a very severe heart disease. That was my traumatic childhood. And he died when I was a kid. I know what that's like living in that environment where you're listening for the person breathing. You're, you know, making sure, right? You're always on high alert. That is in and of itself. It's not the, I think what she's afraid to say is my child is a human, a precious gift, a unique entity to themselves, but their medical condition, that's traumatic. Parenting, what I call them neurodiverse or psychodiverse kids in and of itself is traumatic. It's also grief, right? You have to mourn the child you were envisioning right? and then parent the child in front of you and you're allowed to. I think it's very threatening, right? Like for a mother to say, I'm mourning the child I was envisioning. It's, yeah. it's even threatening to admit to something like gender disappointment. It's threatening to admit to something like seeing a child who's very, very different from you and you had this dream of a mini me or, you know, certain experiences and your child, you know, maybe you and your husband were dreaming of like an athlete just like your husband and then you get a chess geek. Right. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to mourn. Sure. You're allowed to mourn that and then parent the child in front of you. Right. Mm-hmm. It's okay Absolutely. to mourn that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually have a, a chapter in the book that discusses how do you do that, that appropriately, not in front of your child, because they don't want your child to feel shame for who they are. And so, yeah, how do you mourn that? Because I do, I've seen a lot of parents and to be honest with you, because I see them so much, it's one of my first questions in, in the intake session is, you know, do you feel like you need to grieve, you know, the loss of the child that you were anticipating, the life that you kind of envisioned for them? And 95% of my parents say, yeah, I need to. 
the other 5% are not quite there yet. They're kind of gauging their spouse on, can I say this in front of them? Yeah. Um, but it's a big topic in therapy. It's. I love that question. I, I feel like I need to add that to my intake form because it's an excellent question because it's so diagnostic. But I also, I love that you're pointing out how threatening it is to say. It is so threatening. Yeah. And because I think society has shamed parents in so many ways, I think parents think like, okay, here's just another way I could be shamed. Because especially with my parents raising a kiddo with a disability, they don't have anyone to go to because a huge message that they've received is, well, at least you have a child. At least you were blessed enough with a child. Or God wouldn't give you anything more than you could handle. And it's like... Stop saying. <laughs> First of all, you're not God's accountant. That's between her and God. You are not that mediator. Right, God has not right. appointed you divinely to make his, you know, to keep his bucks. Yeah. So, you know, it's lovely when someone comes to something like that on their own. Like this is a mm-hmm. challenge that I will grow from. This is something that, you know, I can do this. I certainly parented a neurodiverse child. And yeah, I learned a lot. I got a lot of insight for working with the parents I work with. In many ways, that was a challenge that built me. But no one has the right to say that to me. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. I also and unfortunately, think, yeah. yeah, sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, no, no. I was just going to add, it, it's so common within the Christian community that unfortunately it has become like the scapegoat answer of anytime you go through something challenging, it's, oh, well, God opened this door for a reason again, not helpful. <laughs> I feel like this is in any faith-based community, this is a challenge. I've worked with a lot of people from a lot of different faith, faith-based communities um, in various settings. And this has very often been that sort it's almost like toxic positivity mm-hmm. from the Bible kind of thing. You know, you are, I, I keep saying this, this person, whoever says that to you does not speak for God. Right. Right. Only right. God speaks for God. So, you know, and again, I, and very often I'm not in that person's religious faith, right? So I can't necessarily speak towards it, but I can definitely say that I cannot imagine that there's a higher power that wanted that woman to say that to you. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's amazing just the different messages that, that parents are told and that they receive. And I mean, anything from like being on Facebook to your next door neighbor or to that wonderful, you know, mother-in-law that you have, or the grandparents, or, you know, all these different messages that we receive. A woman reached out to me on social media and told me that she, um, she's a member of the post-traumatic parenting community, that she, she wrote an essay, or maybe posted on Instagram, somewhere on social media about the challenges of being a parent of a child with OCD. And she got such hate from it. People were like messaging her like, but your kid has to actually live with the OCD. How dare you complain? And like a lot of like OCD, I guess people with OCD themselves or, you know, people with strong feelings about this. And she was so like devastated by the shaming. Her struggle is real. It is difficult to parent a child with any form of psychodiversity. Yes, her child has to go through the psychodiversity and that is hard and that is the child's journey. And that's true. And... Right. I feel like we need to undo that like candy and wrapper fallacy where the minute mm-hmm. a child has a diagnosis, they're the candy and the parents are the wrapper. And their job right. is like to pay for therapy and to bring them to therapy, to do the therapy homework, to like whatever. If it's like, you know, something we have to cook a special diet for it or bring them to appointment. But the right. kid's the candy. Mom's not just right. the wrapper, especially in OCD treatment where mom is actually being asked. Like, I know I treat a lot of OCD and like mm-hmm. mom is being asked to 
actively participate in exposures at home, in recording behavior, in changing things and not answering questions or not coming back, you know, 20 different times to answer the same question. Mom has to do that work. Yeah. You know, to shame mom for saying this is hard. I mean, my heart just broke for her. Oh, man. Well, and it's really interesting because, you know, with being a marriage and family therapist, like we see the entire family. And so I recently had a client, such a tough story. He has was a professor in an Ivy League school back east and received a diagnosis of rapid onset Parkinson's. And so his body immediately started to deteriorate. This is not how he envisioned his retirement. This is not how he and his wife envisioned, right? They're like, and and it wasn't even end of life. Like he's in his late fifties. And so they moved to Arizona for the better weather. And so I always work with the two of them as a couple to like really grieve that loss of their retirement. And, and they're actually parents of a child who they adopted, I believe from South Africa. And so trying to parent this young teenage girl in the midst of this, who actually had reactive attachment disorder, it's like we had so much going on, but to dismiss the wife and say, but it's not your, your diagnosis. Like you have nothing to worry about when she has become the full take caretaker of everyone in the home. I mean, yeah, it's the individuals too in the home without the diagnosis that really go missed, you know, in a lot of situations. And one person's need does not dismiss another person's need or another person's emotions. Where did that come from? Like this whole philosophy of, well, if I have a bigger need, yours can go on the back burner. And like, why did that occur? Like, I don't, I don't understand. That's never been my philosophy. In, In my classes, I always talk about playing trauma poker This idea that like, you know, this is why I hate the term big T and little t trauma, because I think it completely misses how trauma Mm -hmm. works. You know, and it's like, I see your, you know, being the caregiver of someone with Parkinson's and I raise you actually having Parkinson's and like, and I raise you being adopted by this, right? Like, it makes no sense. It's not a zero sum game. Everybody is struggling with what they're struggling with. Everybody is is dealing with this challenge together. One person does not negate the other. It's not a zero sum game. I love that phrase. I'm going to use that from now on. It's, it's <laughs> great. I, love, like I say it all the time. Let's not play trauma poker. Also, you know how many times someone will talk about, you know, one of these traumas that everybody recognizes as like a big T trauma, but the actual mm-hmm. trauma was something else. You know, the actual thing that they're grappling with. For example, I've had this a lot because I've a lot of my post-traumatic parenting classes I've done, you know, parenting after losing a parent in your childhood, let's say. And Mm -hmm. someone will say, you know, losing my mom was hard, but you know what was even harder? How distant my dad became afterwards because he was, you know, so overburdened with everything he had to do for the family. Or then my friends started treating me differently and I got marginalized socially because everyone treated Mm -hmm. me as like the kid whose mom has cancer. And, you know, the real trauma was losing my friends. Interesting. Oh, I had never thought of that before. So I just wow. I hate that term, like big T trauma, little T mm. trauma. It's meaningless. It makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Interesting. So, and I know that you love and you're well-versed in the realm of parenting. Obviously, like I know that you've been through the book, but when you see parents who are really parenting from the past, right? They're parenting through their trauma. Um, what are some initial steps that you kind of walk them through of like, how do you just identify it? And then how do we start to move? past it? What do you do? So for me, I try to do a lot of let's speak to your inner child. 
Let's mm-hmm. hear, let's really flesh out what your childhood was like and what you would have needed. I actually love in your book how you really talk about when you're parenting the child you were, not the child in front of you. Did you come to that because of your childhood experiences? Did you feel like your mom was parenting the child she was instead of you? Did you feel like, did you feel like you've seen it in clinical practice? Like that's what I would have needed, but it's not what your kid needs. Yeah. I feel like it came a lot, mostly from my professional realm. Mm -hmm. And then I saw how it tied in, like personally, my biological father actually left when I was six months old. And so I have an older sister and, you know, my mom and I just kind of abandoned. And so I have this amazing stepdad who adopted us, adopted me when I was four. He married my mom when I was three. And they both really ended up parenting the child that they were. But yeah, a lot of it came from just seeing parents and working with little kids. And I love working with children. It's my favorite because they tell you like it is. <laughs> just, yeah. Every kid I've worked with, if you just listen, they just lay it out for you. And so many kids are like, nope, this is what my mom says. She says, I can't do this because this is what she did as a kid. And I wish that she just saw me for who I was. And I get that from like seven-year-olds to my 17-year-olds. I think it just pulls on my heart a lot because I think we are so often missing embracing that cute, unique personality in kids and letting them like stumble and fall. Um, I know a lot of people have heard of like helicopter parents, right? And we have a lot of helicopter parents, but then we also on the other side, we can then raise a generation of completely distant parents because if they were raised by a helicopter parent who hovered over them and made sure that they did everything they tend to swing to the other side of the pendulum and say, I'm completely hands off with my kid. I trust them to do whatever. They can, you know, go to the mall at 13 by themselves. They can just kind of do their thing. And it's because of how they were parented. And so I see this really interesting pendulum going back and forth amongst generations. And then the other phrase I hear a lot from parents is, oh gosh, I never would have did that when I was a kid. Or back in my day, we didn't have cell phones. Right. All right, Betty. Well, that was, you know, back in the 1940s. And we do have cell phones now. (laughs) We do. Because you have a 16-year-old who is sending, you know, nude photos of themselves. And so how do we, you know, how do we navigate this new generation without shaming them, right? And without dismissing kind of their experiences. And without, right, and and with discussing the world as it is with them. Yeah, we don't always get it. I don't always get the world as it is. When I started recording this podcast, I was really bad at all the tech stuff. And I have a friend who's a computer programmer, and I asked her to come over. And she's like, she came over and she was helping me with all this stuff. And at some point, she looked at me and she goes, Robin, you just need a 10-year-old kid who knows how to turn the machine on. Like, like, that's the level of help you need. Ask a 10-year-old. You don't need a computer programmer. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. It's it's true. Like, you know, technology is evolving and it's a little scary. And the older we get, the harder it is to learn new tech. But that doesn't mean that we have the right not to help our children navigate their world. Absolutely. And, you know, earlier you had mentioned, you know, parents who can be disappointed, you know, if they have a child of a different gender that they were hoping for or a child who maybe isn't the athlete that, you know, maybe one of the parents wanted. And I have really recently seen, too, a lot of parents who aren't okay with that, and they still 
continue to force their child to do sports that they are interested in. They force their child to do activities that they were interested in. And so they're like living vicariously through their child. Sometimes I see it with moms. I see it pretty frequently with dads. You know, when you think about like the t-ball games and you have that overbearing parent who, you know, thinks that it's the World Series. And so it really makes me wonder, you know, what need did you have as a child that wasn't met from your parents, that you're then trying to get that need met through your child? And so when you talk about healing your inner child, I think I use different language, but it's really the same concept of like, what need did you have that went unmet? And how do we go about meeting that need and being okay that you have that need? Because there's no need that is useless or that should be shamed. I love that. And I love in your book, I think one of the things that we have a lot of convergence about is when you figure out your unmet need and you get it and you really understand it, it can give you insight into your child's unmet need. Because yours and your child's may be different, but the sense of an unmet need, you know, you may be dreaming of giving your kid piano lessons because when you were a kid, you wanted them, your family couldn't Mm -hmm. afford them, and your child's just not musical, but Mm -hmm. they love soccer. So sitting there and thinking, you know, I needed not so much the music lessons, what I needed was to have my wishes, my desires, my goals respected. Can I do that for my kid in a whole different arena than what I was envisioning? Right, right. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had a conversation with my mom recently. She, whenever I was little, my mom, she owned and operated a massive home remodeling company, very successful at what she did, but she worked seven days a week. I mean, I cannot tell you one vacation that we went on when I, even until I was 22, that she wasn't working. She didn't have to take a phone call. Like, she just worked constantly. And so when I was little, apparently she reminds me a lot that I used to tell her, like, I wish you didn't work as much. Like, I wish you were around more. And so she looks at my career and, you know, I see clients two days a week. I teach three days a week. And then I write. I love to write. And she says, you know, Brie, with your kids, are you going to be home a lot more? Because that's what you wanted as a kid. And I've told her, I said, you know, my husband, Zach and I, we have not yet made that decision. One, because we're just not at that stage of life yet. But two, it really depends on what my kid needs. Because if my kid is coming to me telling me, hey, mom, I need you home more, like I'm not okay. Absolutely, 100%, I will be there. But if I have a kid who's coming and who's not voicing that and who has extracurriculars or they're spending time with so-and-so, like I'm not just going to sit around at home and say, well, this was my need as a kid. Why don't you have this need? Right. Or even right? more, like, like keep your kid home from things because you have the need for closeness with right. them right. when, you know, mm-hmm. when they need to spread their wings now. Right. And so that's where I've had to kind of check myself, you know, even before going into parenting of, well, what are messages and things that I might do as a parent that I just need to be aware of and actually talk to my spouse about it? He was an only child. And so he very adamantly says, we're not having just one child. It's just not doable for us. And he said, because it was hard as a kid. Like I took my best friend on vacations with me. And and so I said, you know, that makes sense. I have two siblings. I don't know if I want three children. (laughs) So we've kind of decided, ideally, if, you know, this is what God has for us, we'd love to have two. But it's really interesting that we both kind of can talk about you know, parenting how we were raised or how we weren't raised and how 
you know, there were great things that our parents did, but how can we integrate that? And, you know, I, in the book, I talk about how do you let your childhood dictate how you parent versus how do you let it influence how you parent? Yes. I love and that. so we want to get to that point of, I don't want it to dictate how I parent. And I've told him, we both know a lot of each other's dramas, all of them. And so we can kind of hold each other accountable of, hey, is this coming from your past? What's going on? Um, to where when we do have, you know, children, it's not just this huge blow up of a mess. I because love I, how you are part of that trend of people who are healing themselves before parenting. I was surprised how many people who are not parents but would like to be are members of the post-traumatic parenting community. I didn't expect that. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, it's so interesting. Even the concept of being a parent, a lot of times when you ask parents like, oh, you know, like, why do you want children? Or why did you have children? Just purely out of curiosity, a lot of times they had said to me, well, it was just expected. Like my parents just expected it. And so even the process of having children, it's like, like, why are we having them? Like, are we doing this because which I think, you know, teen pregnancy can be a really big challenge because it's, well, I want someone to love. I had a 12-year-old come to me and she's trying to convince her single mom to adopt a baby. And I said, okay, well, what difference would it make if your mom adopted a baby? And she said, well, then I would have something to do all summer and I'd have someone to love me. Aww. And I said, ah, okay, that's Maybe what we're going to work on next in therapy. Maybe. Right. I suggested like, let's start with fish. Um, Because mom's plate is really full, but it was so interesting to me to hear that need from her that I don't know if I would have heard it another way. Right. Like this baby will be a unique human with their own life and they may not love you in the way you want to be loved. They may not like the same things you like. Right. Mm -hmm. We need a parent from a place of I'm here to nurture a little human who isn't me and who doesn't exist to serve my needs. And and you're right. That doesn't happen naturally right Mm -hmm. away. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I think about politics a lot too. And I hear from quite a few parents that they're so disappointed because their child is of a different political party or political affiliation than what they are. And they're like, but I raised my child better than this. And it's almost like they're having to grieve the loss that their child didn't turn out exactly how they wanted them to turn out. Right. And so, I mean, it, it's just, it's really interesting to me to to look at that and, and kind of wonder like, okay, well, did you only have children because you thought that they would be a Republican or a Democrat? Like, why did we have children then? Yeah, I feel like I blame some of the parenting books of like the 80s and 90s, which did give parents the sense that they could mold their child. That's not what a child is. They A lot of what they are, they come that way out of the box. They are born already pre-wired with a lot of it. Sure, we can shape the like behavioral expression of those traits, right? Like we can, mm-hmm. a child who gets angry easily can be passionate for justice or they can be the playground bully. So we can shape that, mm-hmm. but we're not going to shape them into this totally chill, calm person who never gets angry. The way they're yeah. born is the way they're born. Yeah. It reminds me, actually, because I teach human development to my undergrad students, and I show them the documentary. Um, have you seen Three Perfect Strangers or Three Identical Strangers? No. Oh, you oh the one about the, the, the triplets I'm, I'm separated at birth? Yeah. I feel like I saw that years ago, maybe in grad school. 
and they end up at the same university. They all have the exact same mannerisms. I mean, if you study like twins who are separated at birth or triplets separated at birth, I mean, there's actually one case too. I think they were both named Jim. I'll have to Google it. But they were both named Jim. They both ended up marrying women with the exact same first names, divorced those women, ended up marrying second wives with the exact same names. They had the same exact type of job. They had the same exact number of children. It's like, how much of this is nature versus nurture? And I think a lot of parents struggle with it not being nurture because it's less control that you have. And so just to know that, hey, the kid that comes out or the kid that arrives, you know, there is so much that's out of your control with it. I feel like the minute we're slavishly adhering to anything in our parenting or any outcome that we're looking for or anything, any ideology, is the minute that we're operating out of a trauma brain. Like, then I want to ask a lot of questions. Like, what would it mean for you if your child was of a different political party, but in every other respect was a wonderful human who contributes to society and just a genuinely great person? What would that mean? Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, in the beginning of the book, I talk about the difference question of I highlight what's your ideal outcome. And if that occurred, what difference would that make for you? And typically, I have to ask clients seven to eight times to really get to the root of what's going on. And I'll be honest with you, 95% of the people I work with, it's I would be good enough. I'd be a good enough mom. I would have been a good enough dad. And sometimes I get, I'd feel loved or wanted or included. But a lot of the times that phrase, if I would be good enough, pops up. Right. And then and, that's the question of when were you not good enough? What makes you think you're not good enough? Where'd you learn that? Yeah. So it's really, it's amazing that whenever you can start to heal someone's trauma or scary or negative experiences, how they can really alter so many aspects about their life. And when I work with couples specifically in the parent-child relationship, I have like two mason jars. Um, and I say, you know, this is you and this is you. And the two of you are clashing up against each other. But if I remove this mason jar, right, with Bob in it, and I put Tim in it, and you're still going to clash the exact same way, because it's you, you are the one engaging in those interactions, those behaviors, those choices. It's not everybody else's fault. At some level, we need to take an accountability as to, okay, what am I thinking, believing and doing that's causing me to interact with people the same way? It's interesting. I, I recently, I guess it wasn't recently, probably several months ago, I saw a gentleman who was on his fourth wife. And his response to me was, well, if I could just, you know, marry a woman who did all of these things, it'd be fine. Hmm. And so then it comes down to, well, if they did all these things, what difference would that make for you? And again, he started to recognize it was a lot of his patterns and it was a lot of his thoughts and behaviors that were coming into this relationship that just weren't working for him. And I think we do the same thing as parents, that if we take one child out of the situation and we put a different child in the situation, you can likely see very similar patterns and interactions going on because that parent is the one that's not changing. They're the constant. I don't know if you see that very often, but it tends to be pretty prominent in my practice. I see something similar where themes start popping up again, right? The same thing like, mm -hmm. you know. I'll have someone who will talk about 
being belittled, put down, disrespected by her boss, by people in her childhood, by her parents, and then by her children. And at some point, we have to look at what are you bringing to that table? Where is this coming from? Right? Because, yeah, that trauma app is going to keep telling you, like, oh, no, it's happening again. Oh, no, it's happening again. But this is your kid, especially I find it the mo- the, re- the reason I saw it the most clearly is when it's an infant, right? Because when it's a teenager, there could be a lot going on, right? There's a lot of reciprocal interaction. I sometimes think like the function of the female adolescent of the species is just to make the adult female of the species want to kill herself. You know, like, that's just their job, you know, like that's what teenage girls are, like except that. Um, like that to a certain funny. extent, she's supposed to be doing this. This is part it's of, true. you know, yeah. but when yeah. you're talking about an infant, everybody hates me. Everybody criticizes me. Everybody puts me down. This is your baby. Your baby is wired to love you, right? If you read anything by Daniel Siegel, right? Interpersonal neurobiology, your baby mm-hmm. only knows that it feels good and safe and comfortable when it smells you, when it's near you. So you're saying right. this baby is crying so much because it thinks I'm an inadequate mother, I have to know that's about you. When it's your teenager, it's a little bit more confusing. But when it's your three-month-old, when it's your 16-month-old, right, that's when it becomes clear. But then when I hear the same thing from a similar mother about a teenager, it's like, wait, let's find the origin of this. So she's the latest in a long line of people to put you down and be snarky towards you and make you feel less than. Let's unpack that. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you think about those core beliefs, right? And how often those core beliefs come from your childhood. And unfortunately, you know a ton about the brain, but within your reticular activating system, how it scans and it screens out like affirmation of your core beliefs. And so you might have 10 people in your life, right? Who like you, but it's that one person who maybe doesn't like you that your brain holds on to. And is like, wait a minute, my group of friends doesn't like me. And so, yeah, it's really fascinating how the brain kind of works and does that. And I have to walk a lot of parents through that. Unfortunately, some of these, it's not a very conscious choice that your brain is making to say, wait a minute, I'm not liked. Because it happens so quickly because that neural pathway is like a 10-lane highway, right? Whereas the opposite of that, of, you know, I'm liked by people, feels like a little dirt road that you're kind of putting around down. And so it's how do we decrease this massive freeway in your brain? And how do we start for looking for exceptions to that rule, right, that pops up in your brain of I'm not liked? And sometimes it becomes a little seductive and dangerous when your kid is the one who does like you, right? You have that, especially when they're like two and three and you're, they're like, mommy, 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 mommy. You know, they're like little puppy dogs. They're like, you know, and you're the hero and you're everything. And then you want to hold on to that stage, but they get older. And then they're like 11 and it's more like my best friend, my best friend, my best friend. Mommy's not as nearly as important. And if we're not very clear and conscious about this is a developmental process this child needs mm-hmm. to undergo. Yeah, being liked and looked up to and unconditionally accepted by someone was seductive and great, but I honestly need to process that in therapy because it's not my child's role in the world to make me feel like a good enough person. Right. I love that phrase role. Like what is your child's role in your life and what should it be? And, you know, I think if we were to ask like a hundred parents that question, I really wonder how many of them would say, you know, something that would be self-serving not intentionally, right? But it's that mindset of, oh, well, this is what my child should be doing. Yeah. 
I think we learned that in therapy, right? Like I remember doing some very intensive supervision because I was working with somebody with um, with chronic PTSD. And at the beginning of her therapy, she was not intentionally, because any term I'm going to use is going to sound intentionally manipulative, but it, we were sort of in that love bombing phase of her being like, you're the best therapist in the world. You're the only person who's ever gotten me. And I was talking to the supervisor who has worked. She, this is what she specializes in. And she said to me, it's very seductive to hear that because that is all those anxieties you had in graduate school. Like, will I be a good therapist? Do I know how to do this? Am I a good enough therapist for these people? All of a sudden, she's telling you, you're the best. Oh, my gosh, no one's ever gotten me like you. And you're going to unconsciously want to hold on to that. But she needs to go past that phase into that phase where you're the worst therapist in the world and you don't get her and you're the meanest person ever until you get to that synthesis of this is therapy. I do see you. I do see your traumas. I do see what an incredible person you are. And there are times I will let you down. And I won't get exactly what you're saying, or I will see a situation differently. And that's, that's what therapy is all about. It would make me wonder too, asking her the same question of, well, what is my role as your therapist? Right. Like when you entered therapy, what did you think the role of the therapist was? And it's interesting when I do couples work, I'll often ask that question, you know, what, what do you think about therapy if you've never had it before? And a lot of times they'll say, well, I just want you to tell my spouse how wrong they are. <laughs> I'm like... Well, I'm, you know, you don't pay me enough to do that, right? So I'm not going to do that. And what we're going to do is something a little bit different. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. I'll get parents who say, well, I think your role is to, you know, help my child process A, B, C, and D. And when I tell them, I actually think part of my role is to work myself out of a job, right? I don't want your child only communicating with me. That does me no good, right? Like I'm not your child's attachment figure. What I really want is for your child to communicate with you. And that is mind blowing to so many parents. They think like, oh, well, once they communicate with you, then they'll just start to communicate with me. And I say, no, that's definitely not how that works. We really need to, you know, increase the attachment, increase the trust and the bonding between the two of you. So I'm not needed. Um, and it, it's really an interesting yeah, process. Do you ever have parents who feel like they're not the best person to bond with their kid and you would do a better job. So they're trying to sort of offload that onto you because they themselves feel deficient in some way. Yeah. No one has probably articulated it quite like that. But I think how I would define that is a parent who drops their child off at therapy and says, I'll be back in an hour to get them. And I don't let, and I, I actually supervise quite a few different associate level clinicians. And I, you know, I teach. And so I tell them that parent's not allowed to leave the building. Not only is it, you know, a liability issue if something happens happens to the kid, but we are then condoning the message that you are a better parent than they are and that they aren't needed in this situation. And that's the last message I would ever want to send to a parent is that I'm better than you are because there's no way. It's just not not possible. It's not a great message to send. But yeah, I had to have that conversation with a mom um, who wanted to send her daughter to me to have the like comfortable, uncomfortable touch conversation, or that's I like to call it the confusing touch conversation because she was molested as a kid and she has too many hangups and she's mm -hmm. going to, you know, give her hangups over to her daughter. And I said, I think what my role here is, is to help you through that process that that sense of being damaged 
mm-hmm. process that. And I can I can tell you what right. I would say. We can have mm-hmm. many conversations about the information that needs to be given to your daughter. Mm-hmm. But you are the person who's going to give that information to your daughter. My role here is not to give that information to your daughter. My yeah. role here is to help you give that information to your daughter. Mm-hmm. But I'm too damaged. I have I have hangups. I have all sorts of I have all sorts of hangups when it comes to this topic. I, I'm too triggered mm-hmm. by it. All right, then that's the post-traumatic parenting work. Right, right. right. And that's what we work on and that's what we do. Yeah, I, it just breaks my heart for so many parents who, who have those fears because I think they're coming from a good place, right? I think it's the, I don't want to harm my child with my stuff, but it's also, there's not just only two options, right? It's not only right. like I completely avoid the topic, right? And it's not, oh, I give them all my junk, right? There's so many different options and avenues that we can take. Yeah, I often see that a lot too with my parents who maybe struggled with an eating disorder when they were yes. younger. And so they're so afraid to tell their child, hey, like we're not going to have dessert tonight or hey, maybe this isn't the best choice because they don't want to put that onto their child. And And I tell parents, like, I think, you know, you're coming from such a good place of not wanting to, again, parent how your parent parented you and the the shaming and the body shaming. And I go, but at a certain level, we shouldn't be eating three popsicles in one night. Like, we do need to start making these. I always say we need to give we need to give our kids taste buds a fighting chance against like big food and like the food industrial complex, because, you know, when they're going to like genetically engineer a candy to be absolutely perfectly delicious, then an apple can't compete, right? So right. I just want to give an apple a fighting chance, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, but a lot of parents who are in recovery from eating disorders worry about that, which totally understandably. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about your panic attacks as a child and how that informs your clinical work? Yeah. Ooh. So I really struggled. I mean, I easily been diagnosed with panic disorder with agoraphobia if my mom had taken me to go see a therapist, which is probably why I became a therapist. Because I I really believed as a child, and I was in seventh grade, and I don't remember attending seventh grade. Like I don't remember any of my teachers. But I had a younger brother who was 10 years younger than I am. So he's about two and he gets all this attention. And I have an older sister who's four years older than I am who's 16 and driving and she gets all the attention. And so you have that kind of middle child syndrome of like, if something happened to me while I'm at school, no one will come and get me. No one will protect me. No one will help me. And so I had this deep fear and I would not get out of the back of my mother's car. I wouldn't do it until I became friends with the school counselor. Pat Beatty was my school counselor in middle school phenomenal human being. And he actually had a therapy dog, which is why I have mine. And so I would go in and he said, you know, Brie, you come to school four or five days a week. I'll pull you out of class and you can come in here and play with Sprocket, his dog. And that was enough incentive because then I knew I have a safe person at this school. Somebody will protect me and somebody will come get me. And so whenever I work with kids who have any type of anxiety and, you know, panic attacks, I feel for them so much because it's such a terrifying feeling to feel like I'm going to die. Something bad's going to happen to me and no one is listening to me. And so when I work with little kids, I always try and ask them like, well, what's the anxiety telling you? Like, what's the scariest thing that could happen? Yeah. 
And then how do we kind of help alleviate those fears? But yeah, it was terrifying. And I still struggle with panic attacks. I recently spoke at a conference in Utah, Utah Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And driving up there, I'm alone in the car. It's a 10-hour drive. And I start to have a panic attack of like, if something happens to me on the side of the road, no one will find me and I'll die. (laughs) And I've got a phenomenal, I've got a phenomenal therapist I work with. And I texted my husband and I'm like, Hey, if I get a flat tire, you won't let me die on the side of the road. Right. And I just (laughs) adore him. And he goes, no, babe, I will come and get you. I promise. And I'm like, okay, everything will be fine. And so, I mean, I still struggle with it to some extent, right? Nature versus nurture. And the nature part is anxiety just runs through my family, but I don't let it stop me from doing things. And I think that's where a lot of my work has come in of I'm going to feel this and I'm going to feel uncomfortable, but I'm not going to let, let it stop me from doing things that I really want to do. Yeah. It's not going to take me away from my values. I feel like that's such a great, my mom was a school guidance counselor. So I feel like that's such a great, like, sort of validation of what school guidance counselors can do, right? Like, Pat and Sprocket made you feel seen and heard Uh and supported. And that's what you needed as a little seventh grader. Right, right. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And it breaks my heart. He actually passed away um, three, four years ago, Um, way too young. He was, I think, in his 50s. Well, it breaks my heart. But yeah, I don't, I don't think very many yeah school counselors and school psychologists realize just how important you are to yeah. so many kids and how it's when and my parents weren't neglectful right like they were great people they had a company they were running and they had three kids and something's got to give and I always say my analogy is the dominoes were too close together Mm-hmm. Right. And if one mm-hmm. domino doesn't work, you don't get out of the car. Your mom's late to a meeting. The whole day topples over. Yeah. It's like that. It sounds like from your mom's trauma of being abandoned by her first husband, you know, feeling like it's me or we starve, like me or this, or this, these two kids will be dead right. in a ditch from starvation. That mm-hmm. trauma impacted her parenting from the most well-intentioned place. She wanted to keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. And her phrase, you know, growing up was always, Brie, you're fine. You're fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong with you. Well, it, plus I had chronic stomach aches, not because the anxiety, but because I was diagnosed in my doctorate with IBS. Oh, wow. And so I was eating things that literally aren't digesting in my stomach. And so when she would tell me, Brie, you're fine. I'm thinking you're not in my body. I'm not fine. And you're not listening. You don't get it. So Right, right. And and so I know that it came from such a good place of like, well, I want you to feel okay. I want you to know that you're okay. But it wasn't helping. Right. Like, (laughs) right. You know, medically, I remember someone saying this to me in a very helpful and validating way where I was having a surgery and the nurse said to me, your heart's going to start racing now from the medication that we've just injected. It's going to feel like you're having a heart attack or something, but this is what's to be expected. This is exactly how it feels when we inject this into you and then it'll pass. Just having her say that to me so that I didn't have to have that discomfort of my heart is pounding. Am I dying on the operating table? Like for the first like three minutes and I'm going to like count to a hundred and it'll be over was so validating and supportive. Rather than like, it's like sort of saying to a kid, like, this won't hurt a bit. No, it will hurt for a yeah, second. Yeah, it will hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. And then, so, you know, you'll be okay afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it's this idea of transparency. I've actually written a couple clinical articles 
about how we as therapists can and we should be a lot more transparent about the homework that we give, about the conversations and the questions that we ask. Because when I go into a doctor's office and they ask me, do you smoke? Are you drinking? You know, they put you on the scale. They take your blood pressure. I don't know why they do those things. Like, I genuinely don't know why they do those things. And so I think it's so important, especially when you're working with someone's mental health of, hey, why are you asking me about if I have suicidal thoughts? Should I be? Should I not be? What's going on? Right. And so I think because we, people with anxiety, we tend to overthink the situation when, hey, no, no, it's just a diagnostic tool. I just want to make sure you're good. But yeah, like I'm legally mandated to ask you this question. It's not where I'm not thinking you specifically might be suicidal today. Right. Yeah, Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really, and I love it because I had kind of a traumatic surgery almost five years ago and they did not prep me at all for what my body was going to feel like, what was going to happen. And luckily I know enough about the body and the central nervous system. But when I came out of anesthesia and I'm just laying there, I was shaking. I couldn't stop shaking. And the nurse just kept saying, stop shaking, like control your body. And I told her, no, my body just went through a trauma. It needs to shake. And I let it shake just uncontrollably. And my body actually does it after I have a panic attack too. And I let it shake because with the sensory motor aspect of it, your body is needing to release so much of what's going on. And if you've read like Peter Levine, you know that animals in the wild run around in circles after they survive an attack, Mm -hmm. right? And this is to shake off the adrenaline. Your body also very medically uninformed of that nurse, right? Like, I'm so sorry that happened to you because you can't control those shakes after anesthesia. It's not possible to. So, yeah, slow your breathing. You'll feel a little better as you slow your breathing is pretty much the only thing you can control. You can't control those shakes, and you shouldn't. The more you think about controlling them, the longer they're going to persist. Your body's releasing adrenaline. It will stop when it's ready to stop. Right. Yeah. It was so, it was funny. We went to, my husband and I went to a comedian, went to stand up comedian one night, and inside one of the theaters in Arizona, I kid you not, the seats were like this. Mm-hmm. And so we were sitting on the balcony, and I had to look like between my knees to see him because of like how far down it was and there's no railing right and I don't do heights I don't do them in any way shape or form so we sit down and I'm looking up at the ceiling my husband looks and he goes you gonna be okay and I somewhat looked down and I immediately got nauseous I immediately got lightheaded and I stood up and I bolted and I said nope and not doing this. <laughs> so we went to the ticket counter and the lady was so sweet. And she goes, well, there's actually first row tickets that are still available. Do you want these? We ended up sitting first row, which was awesome. But my husband was holding my hand and he could feel me shake throughout the entire rest of the, the show. And he's like, are you okay? Do you need anything? And I said, I just need to shake. Like, this is right. just my body's way of getting rid of it. And I think all too often, yeah, we have this idea of like, oh, my body shouldn't be doing this. And you tense up and you clench up, which is the last thing that you should be doing. Right. This should never work. We we shame people a lot for their like motoric reactions to things. We do this with kids also. A kid is very stressed out. I was consulting in a school and there was a kid who, you know, answered a question wrongly. And and you could tell she was very embarrassed. And then she asked to leave the room and the teacher told her she couldn't have a pass then. And then when I was talking to the teacher after, I said, why did you decide that? 
And she said, well, I knew she really wanted to leave the room just because she was feeling bad, not because she really needed the bathroom. Why is that not a legitimate need? Right. Yeah. She's coping. She's self-soothing. I think it's okay to let herself soothe. Right. Let herself regulate. It's fine. And the way the teacher was, she was like, she needs to face these things. That is facing it. Right. Being trapped is facing it. Being trapped is trapped. Leaving is facing it. You go back to the bathroom, you wash your face, you take a drink of cold water, you say, it's okay, this is not going to derail my life forever, I made a mistake in class, everyone will forget about it by tomorrow, and then you move on with your life. That is facing it. Being trapped in it is not facing it. Being trapped in it is being trapped in it. And what happened probably in that moment was that little girl then said, my teacher's not safe. Like, I can't get my needs met here. And so then school can become the trigger. Of if something happens to me, right? Like if I need something, she's not listening. And then right. what happens if she really does have to go to the bathroom and then her teacher dismisses her? This is like yeah. the origin. This could be the origin story of panic attacks at school, right? Like this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what. In anxiety, especially post-COVID, anxiety and depression has been skyrocketing amongst the kids that I see. Yes. It's so awful. I feel so bad for so many of these kids. And Unfortunately, a huge way that a lot of them are self-soothing is through technology, social media and video games, which it's actually not coping. Yes. Actually, what I like to say is beware of your off buttons, because what happens is an off button just shuts off your anxiety until you're watching a show. And then when the show ends, your anxiety comes right back. Right. It's dangerous, right? right? Mm-hmm. We, like technology has its uses. I'm not a big believer in like, let's blink it. Like our kids can never have a screen and, you know, like... We have to teach them how to be competent with it. But when they're using it as their only form of self-soothing, that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's really hard. I think so many, you know, adults do it too. I see parents who are in the lobby and they're just scrolling through Instagram and they're scrolling through social media while they wait. And I don't know. I think that social media can be great for so many things, but Self-soothing isn't one of them. (laughs) Yeah, and it interferes with presence and parenting for sure. Yeah. Yeah, It really does. I absolutely love so much of what you're sharing and the way, I love the way you are able to so gently get in there and show parents that there's another way. Mm -hmm. You don't have to replicate the childhood you had. You don't have to do the opposite of the childhood you had. You can connect to the human in front of you. I think that's such a beautiful message. And... I so appreciate you being on the podcast today because I feel like this is a really important message for everybody. And I think the book is incredible. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to talk to you. And I just, I love the entire post-traumatic parenting concept and your goals and your just love for people and your just desire to help people. So thank you so much for having me. And I can't believe how much time has passed. I mean, it's, so yeah, fun we to talk about talk these forever, things. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram 
My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.